0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, That he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Christ the enslaved find redemption, the guilty find pardon, and the unholy find renovation. Show us Christ this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. amen Amen. you can be seated so here we are in Mark chapter 16 the end of Mark's gospel the account of the resurrection but to fully understand the resurrection we have to go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel the very first verse of Mark says this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And then in chapter 1, Mark gives a quote from both Isaiah and Malachi to prove that Jesus is divine, to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And remember the context in which we're talking. This is the first century Roman world where they have a Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus claimed to be the Son of God, but he was a pretender. The only son of God who has the right to be the ruler of the universe is Jesus Christ. And so one of the themes of Mark's gospel, as some commentators have pointed out, is to prove that unlike Caesar, this son of God truly is divine. Mark's gospel makes clear that this God-man, Jesus Christ, is not a pretender. Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. He really is divine, unlike Caesar. And Jesus Christ really does have power over nature and power over men. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 11. God the Father himself identifies Jesus as being his Son. Immediately after his baptism, which inaugurates Jesus' ministry, it says... Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this is a parallel to the words the Father speaks to the Son in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 2, where sonship and servanthood are linked together. And so it's not just that Jesus is the Son of God, it's that Jesus Christ is the servant Son. And somehow this divine being has a very humble servant attitude. In other words, he's not like the spoiled sons of Caesar. Besides, what son of Caesar has power over demons? What son of Caesar has power over nature? None. And that's why Caesar and all the Caesars that have come after him are pathetic fakes. Remember Mark chapter 3, verse 11, for another emphasis on the fact that this servant of the Lord is the Son of God. It says, Mark chapter 3, verse 11, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. So it's not just the divine voice from heaven that understands this is the Son of God. Even the demons understand this. And notice the word whenever. Whenever they saw him. So this is apparently happening frequently. Demons recognize who he is and acknowledge him to be the Son of God. Remember Mark chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. This describes the time that Jesus ministers to a Gentile who is possessed by a legion of demons. And it says... When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And so not only does Jesus have power over demons, the demon is frightened by him and the demon declares that he is God. He is the son of the most high God. And we have to remember that none of these declarations of divinity, none of these declarations of Jesus' divine sonship contradict the fact that he is the servant of the Lord. Since remember, in the book of Isaiah, it describes this servant as both God and man. And so Jesus is the Son of God. Remember Mark chapter 9, verse 7, the transfiguration. God himself descends upon Jesus in a cloud, transforming Christ's appearance so that it shines brightly like the sun. And then it says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And so once again, the Father is affirming what? The Father is affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember Mark chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus tells his disciples that his words will never pass away. And then in the next verse, it tells them why. Because he is the son of the father. Remember Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62. One of the most powerful declarations that Jesus is divine is when the Sanhedrin puts him on trial. The high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then they immediately accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus is claiming to be the divine Son of Man in the clouds that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, which everyone knew referred to Yahweh God Himself. So Jesus is both Son of Man and Son of God. Jesus is both man and God. But while the Jews rejected him as the God-man, remember the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross did not. Remember in Mark chapter 15 after seeing all of the supernatural darkness and the earthquake the Roman centurion is totally convinced and he says in Mark chapter 15 verse 39 truly this man was the Son of God. And then remember the royal imagery found all throughout Mark's gospel, especially in Mark chapter 15, which is odd because Mark chapter 15 is the very long crucifixion chapter. And by definition, the Messiah must be a reigning king and not a dead one. And yet the royal imagery in Mark chapter 15 is thick. Mark chapter 15, verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20, the soldiers cloak Jesus in a purple robe, purple being the color of kings, and then they put a crown on him, a crown of thorns, and then they mock him as king of the Jews. The royal imagery continues in Mark chapter 15, verse 26, they put a sign on him that says, king of the Jews. Then Mark chapter 15, verse 32, the chief priests mock him and they say, if he is a king let him come down from the cross and there the taunts are ironically true because Jesus is the King of the Jews and that is demonstrated not by Jesus coming down from the cross but it's demonstrated by Jesus enduring the cross Jesus crucified under the mocking signs the mocking soldiers and the mocking crowds None of this is renouncing his sonship. None of this is renouncing his kingship. Rather, it is redefining sonship, and it is redefining kingship. Because Jesus' rule is a cosmic kingship. Caesar may run the Roman Empire, but Jesus runs the entire cosmos. And didn't Jesus say something about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's? And so Jesus' authority, his regal authority, does not resemble the authority of earthly kings. Because the murdered king, in Mark chapter 15, is the resurrected king, in Mark chapter 16. This king is the author of life, and through his death and resurrection, his kingdom comes. So what's the point of this review? Well, the point is to remind you of the central message of Mark's gospel. Mark's central message is that Jesus, not Caesar, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the servant and he is the Son. He's a servant who was killed, a servant who was buried. And in today's text, in Mark chapter 16, a servant who is raised from the dead. The resurrection doesn't mean Jesus abolished the fact of evil. It means he transformed it. The resurrection is when God twists the crown of thorns into a crown of glory. Because of the resurrection, there is now no end to the manifestation of creative life which means you won't make much of your life if you don't believe in the resurrected king. And so, consider three truths of resurrection life. First, the resurrection is worth believing because Jesus is God and man. The resurrection is worth believing because Jesus is God and man. So let me explain this. We see in Mark chapter 16 that when the ladies arrive at the tomb, the stone is rolled away. Rolled away by who? Well, rolled away by God. The activity of God is apparent in the movement of the stone. And so the ladies go into the tomb and there is a young man dressed in a white robe. Who is this young man? Well, apparently he is an angel sent by God. The activity of God here is implied in the entire episode because of the message that this young man has for the ladies. Basically, that Jesus is God and man, and he's been raised from the dead. Now, when we think about the resurrection, it's not remarkable to think that God would live forever. And it's not remarkable to think that man would die. It is remarkable to think that God would die. And it is remarkable to think that man could be raised from the dead. Any journalist hearing of that would call it news. If Jesus were God and nothing else, his immortality is unremarkable. If Jesus were man and nothing else, his death is no more noteworthy than anyone else's. But if he is God and man, then when Jesus died God died and when Jesus rose from the dead man rose too that is news worth believing and so the resurrection is worth believing because Jesus is God and man Do you follow now the question is this what does that mean for you right now well because of the resurrection, because of the victory the God-man won, there is no reason for you to live your life as a defeatist. Now there is a culture of defeatism particularly strong in evangelicalism today. Defeatism gains strength after another failed election cycle. Defeatism gains strength after another round of bad news. The evangelical culture of defeatism happens for one main reason. They confuse the future of America with the future of the Kingdom of God. Now, the Christians in the Roman Empire, before it fell, thought much the same way, unable to imagine an expanded gospel kingdom without an expanded Roman Empire. But when God's judgment comes upon a nation, Christians ought not to be distressed like the average Roman. Because, as Americans, our imagination is not animated by liberal democracy. As Christians, our imagination is animated by the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so first, the resurrection is worth believing because Jesus is God and man. Second, life is worth living because Jesus made death a triviality. Life is worth living because Jesus made death a triviality. Now, in Mark's gospel, we read in incredible detail the death of Christ in Mark chapter 15. It's very long. Then, in eight matter-of-fact verses, we're told that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Now, when modern people think about death, modern people think that life is full of suffering and so life is a disaster and death a catastrophe. But the resurrection life says that life is worth living because Jesus made death a triviality. And not trivial as in death is easy, not trivial as in we don't miss those who have died, we certainly do, not death as in Death doesn't sometimes hurt, or there's physical suffering with it. Of course, that is also often the case. No, Christ makes death trivial, trivial as in conquered. And this is the point that 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 makes, when it says that Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so in God's eternal purpose, realized through the appearing of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished for you the whole of your salvation. It says, 2 Timothy 1.10, that Christ abolished death. That's salvation. What is salvation? It's life, not death. Death has been abolished, and all that comes with death has been abolished. Now we have life through Christ. And so... You and I live in a sinful and fallen world with sinful and fallen things all around us. And that means death is all around us. Family members die, friends die, pets die, trees die, flowers die, everything living eventually dies. And modern people think this is a catastrophe and yet God's eternal purpose carried out through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ abolishes death and brings life now our lives are filled with the continual attempt to distract ourselves from the inescapable reality of living namely one day we won't be living but The eternal purpose of God shines into our dark and dying world through Jesus Christ who overcomes death and brings the light of life, which is immortality. Through faith in Jesus as the substitute for your sin, as the substitute for your inevitable death, you pass out of death into life, no longer existing as strangers and sojourners in a world that is dying, but being fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. And we now have a seat waiting for us with the only begotten Son in the heavenly places where we will lack nothing for full and eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. And so the resurrection life says that life is worth living because Jesus made death a triviality. Now the question then for us is this, What does that mean for you right now? Well, a Christian is not only someone who acknowledges the fact of the resurrection of Christ, but who also experiences its power. A Christian is someone who experiences the real nature of what happens to them by faith in Christ and their baptism into the covenant. Now, too many Christians go through life thinking that they can still be friends with the world, that they can still be friends with sin. Yeah, they know James 4.4 says otherwise. They know James 4.4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But they convince themselves that that's just words, that's just idealism. Why do Christians go on thinking that they can be friends with sin? Well, it's because they have never come to terms with Mark chapter 16 verses one through eight. They've never tried to embrace and pursue and live within the true nature of Christ's resurrection. And the true nature of Christ's resurrection is that it's not his resurrection only, but it's yours also by faith. And this doctrine is called union with Christ, and it's explained in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 6. And so we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, when we believe in the death of Christ, then what Christ accomplished in his death is ours. But there's another side to it. When we believe in the resurrection of Christ, then all that Christ accomplished in that resurrection is ours also. Well, what did Christ accomplish? He accomplished a new life. And you now, by faith in him, are to go out and walk in the newness of life, not enslaved to the old man, but walking forward in the new man, in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And because of your union with the resurrected Christ, that means that the true nature of what Christ accomplished with his resurrection is applied to you. This is not some abstract theological concept buried deep in a book. This is the fact of faith in the risen Lord, which means that with the Spirit's help, you can ongoingly resist sin and walk in the newness of life. Now, interestingly, that resistance of sin often starts by confessing it. It starts by confessing your sin to the Lord on your knees, preferably, Asking for forgiveness and then asking for help. And when you're asking for help, what are you asking for? You're asking for the Spirit to apply the metaphysical fact of Christ's resurrection to your new life. And then you're going to walk in the newness of life. Now, what does the newness of life look like? Well, Paul goes on. This is Romans 6.6. It says, the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that's the newness of life. The newness of life is that the body of sin in which we used to walk is brought to nothing so that you are no longer enslaved to sin. And so, the resurrection is worth believing because Jesus is God and man. And second, life is worth living because Jesus made death a triviality. Which means for you, by faith, there's newness of life. We see this phrase in Romans chapter seven, verse six, the new life of the spirit. It's not just a concept, it's the fact that Christians walk in by faith because of Christ. And third, Jesus is worth following because Jesus created a new mode of being. I want you to look with me at verse seven, Mark chapter 16, verse seven. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. He is going before you to Galilee. Now on one level, this is about making plans. Get the crew, let's meet at such and such a place at such and such a time. On a fuller level, this is a fulfillment of the promise found in Mark chapter 14 verse 28 when he told them that he would meet them in Galilee when it was all finished. Of course, they didn't really understand what that meant at the time, but now they're told he went before you to Galilee, you better go. So for Jesus to go ahead is for him to precede them. It's for him to lead them. Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. He is setting the course for the resurrection life. In the resurrection of Jesus, a totally new mode of being appears in the universe. A new mode of being has arisen. Before this time, nothing had been seen like this on planet Earth. But with the resurrected body of Christ, with the living resurrected Christ, we now see on Earth a new mode of being. And he's going to Galilee. Will you go with him to Galilee? Will you follow the resurrected man where he leads? God came into the created universe, down into manhood, and experienced the death of man. And then Jesus rose up, pulling death with him. And it is this risen man who says in John chapter 14, verse 6, no one can touch absolute reality except through me. It is this man who says in Mark chapter 8 verse 35, try to save your own life and you'll be ruined. It is this man who says in Mark chapter 10 verses 43 through 44, give yourself to others and you'll be saved. It's this man who says in Mark chapter 9 verses 42 through 50, whatever is keeping you from me, throw it away. If it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your eye, pluck it out. It's this man who says in Mark chapter nine, verse 35, if you put yourself first, you'll be last. It's this man who says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, if you carry a heavy load, come to me and I'll carry it for you. And so Jesus with a resurrected body, Jesus with a new mode of being is leading you to Galilee. And Jesus says, your sins are wiped away, all of them. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am new life. Eat in and drink in the food and drink that I offer, for I have overcome the whole universe. And so the question then is, what does this mean for you right now? Jesus is worth following because he made a new mode of being. What does that mean for you right now? Well, in Christ's resurrection, a great volume is unrolled for your instruction. instruction, Drawing the materials of future wisdom from the past sins and infirmities that Christ overcame. The greater part of Christ's crucifixion is that Christ absorbs the miseries brought upon the world. The miseries brought upon the world by sin. The miseries brought upon the world by pride and ambition and avarice and revenge and lust and sedition and hypocrisy and ungoverned zeal and all the train of disorderly appetites that animate man. Christ's crucifixion absorbs all of that And the greater part of Christ's resurrection buries the infinite variety of human sins so that you find through the power of the Holy Spirit that there is more joy in living in the new mode of being than in the old mode of being. You find that there's more joy living in the second Adam than there is living in the first Adam. When you follow the resurrected Christ to Galilee, when you follow the resurrected Christ into the new mode of being, you will find through the power of the Holy Spirit that there is more joy in serving than being served. You will find in this life that there is more joy in forgiving than holding a grudge. When you follow the resurrected Christ into the new mode of being, you will find that there is more joy in self-sacrifice than in selfishness. You will find there's more joy in fighting against sin's temptations than giving in to them. And when you follow Christ with the new mode of being where he leads, you will find that there is more joy in worshiping Jesus the King rather than squandering your life with the frivolous, in cynical things of the old man. And so the question for you then is this, will you follow the resurrected man? Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, what we lack in ourselves, we gain by the resurrection of Christ. It is our union with the risen Christ that begets strength joy, glory, and renders all graces alive that we may live the resurrection life. Give us the power of the Spirit that we may walk in faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.